Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Once, when I was working as a reporter in Cleveland, I got the chance to speak with a murder victim after he died. The kid's name was Joe Kupchik. His friends called him Cuppy, a 19-year-old from Strongsville, a middle-class suburb. He lived with his parents while he took classes at Cuyahoga Community College and worked at Steak and Shake. On February 11, 2006, Joe's dad woke him up. He told Joe he was going to do his son's taxes and and he needed to know how much was in his savings. Joe told his old man that he had about seven grand in the bank, but that was a lie. Joe's balance that morning was $4.46. He lost the rest gambling online. Flash forward to later that night, 1 a.m. on the 12th. A man named Adam Warner leaves the Blind Pig Bar in downtown Cleveland and heads for his apartment. Now, if you're from the area, you know that downtown Cleveland is a ghost town at night. We're a city that keeps to its suburbs, kind of like L.A. that way. So there weren't a lot of people out as Adam walked past the Fat Fish Blue Jazz Club and turned down Ontario Avenue. Up ahead, he spotted something lying inside a thin alleyway. It was a body, a young man covered in blood, unconscious but still alive, barely. Adam called 911. He didn't know it yet, but the kid who was dying in front of him was Joe Kupchik. Officer James Foley arrived at the scene and found Kupchik's car on the top floor of the parking deck above where his body was found. The driver's side door was open, and the keys were dangling from the ignition. There was blood on the driver's seat. A six-inch fillet knife lay on the ground beside the car. On the dash was a piece of paper with Kupchik's phone number and home address, something the police later claimed was a suicide note. Kupchik arrived at Metro Health Medical Center at 1.47 a.m. Doctors discovered myriad injuries, broken ankles, a shattered pelvis, internal bleeding. 
all from his fall off the parking deck and a punctured lung, which had been caused by a stab wound to the chest. They tried to save him, but Kupchik died at 3.08 that morning. The coroner said it was a suicide. I don't like suicides with multiple methods of execution. Why stab himself in the car and then jump from the parking deck? What a terrible and odd way to go. The case landed on the desk of two Cleveland detectives who stopped working on it after they learned of Kupchik's gambling habit. They moved on to the other files in their stacks. I worked with Kupchik's father, George, on the story. George didn't buy the suicide theory, and he slowly pieced together a list of circumstantial evidence that pointed to other possibilities. For instance, where was Kupchik's cell phone? It wasn't in the car, wasn't on his body. If his son was covered in blood after stabbing himself, how come there was no blood on the railing he'd have to climb over to jump? Where did the knife come from? It didn't match any at the family's home or at Steak and Shake. I stopped by the Steak and Shake and spoke with Kupchik's manager. She told me that there was information that should be known, but she was scared. She couldn't share what she knew, she said, or she'd lose her job. I later learned that Kupchik had a habit of giving a coworker a ride into Cleveland after work. That coworker skipped town after Kupchik's death. As far as I can tell, the police never interviewed him. Here's where it got weird for me. Joe Kupchik had a twin brother. His name was John, and he looked exactly like Joe. I interviewed John, but it felt like I was interviewing Joe. They had the same face, same voice, and they shared something their sister called that creepy twin thing. They had a way of knowing what the other was up to, almost like a low-level telepathy or something. John told me that Joe's death, to him, felt like an amputated limb. He could still feel his brother's presence sometimes. And sometimes Joe came to him in dreams, like the time he dreamt he was playing basketball with his brother. You're dead, John told him in the dream. You died. But Joe only looked confused. I was mystified by all this as a young reporter. But 14 years later, I think I understand what was happening. I think part of Joe survived inside his brother's mind. A stowaway consciousness, an echo of who his brother once was. It's something scientists have theorized. And this possibility offers us a chance, perhaps, to question the deceased after they've passed on. Hold on to your butts. We're going to get freaky. This is the Philosophy of Crime, and I'm your host, James Renner. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. 
connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Death. It's been called the undiscovered country. It's that great barrier between our world and whatever lies beyond. And as far as we can tell, it seems that once we're on the other side, there's no coming back. And yet, for hundreds of years, detectives and investigators have tried to cheat this universal law to varying degrees of success, because who better to interview about a murder than the victim herself, right? If a victim could tell us who killed them, think of the cases we could solve. But that's ridiculous. An episode of The X-Files or something. Such a thing is impossible in real life. Or is it? The first real scientific attempt to gather eyewitness evidence from the deceased came with the discovery of optography way back in the 1800s. Never heard of optography? Count yourself lucky. Optography is the process of retrieving an image from the retina of an eyeball after death. The idea is that whatever the victim last saw is burned into the back of her eye, like an image captured on a photographic negative. A scientist named Wilhelm Kuhn conducted several experiments in optography. Kuhn was a brilliant scientist, the guy who coined the term enzyme. He was inspired by the recent discovery that the rods inside the retina of the human eyeball contain a photosensitive pigment that could record an image under proper conditions. He tested this hypothesis on rabbits. Picture an albino rabbit with its head fastened to a device that keeps it looking straight ahead at a barred window. Kuhn would cover the rabbit's face for several minutes, then pull the cover off the way old-timey photographers would pull back the aperture of a primitive camera. And uh, then he would chop the bunny's head off and slice open the eyeball from top to bottom. Yeah, I just threw up in my mouth a little. Where was I? Right. So, there's this gross thing at the back of the eye that goes into some kind of fluid. I, I don't know. Look, what happened was Kuhn was able to get an image out of that eyeball that looked kind of like the barred window in his laboratory, the window that the rabbit was staring at. You can find it online if you want to see it for yourself. Kuhn, of course, was anxious to test this out 
on humans, but he had some real trouble finding a volunteer. Then, in 1880, a man named Erhard Reif was sentenced to be executed for the murder of his children. His head was to be chopped off by a guillotine. Kuhn politely asked for his eyeballs, which were delivered to his lab. He examined them closely and sketched what he saw burned into the retina, something shaped like a guillotine. Except, Reif was blindfolded at the time of his beheading, so this all started to sound like bunk to other scientists. However, police thought that perhaps one day we'd develop the technology to make it work for real. So, detectives began to photograph the eyes of victims at crime scenes, including at least one victim of Jack the Ripper. Optography was actually used as evidence in the case of Fritz Angerstein, who was charged with killing eight members of his own family in 1924. A college professor claimed he used Kuhn's technique to extract an image from two of the victim's eyes, and that Angerstein's face could clearly be seen there, along with the axe he used to murder them. When Angerstein learned of the images, he confessed. What the actual hell, right? Okay, well, we maybe have one gross way to see what a dead guy saw, but it would be much more helpful to hear what he has to say. But surely, testimony from a deceased victim has never been used in court. Actually, it has, and don't call me Shirley. Consider the story of one Elva Hester. The year was 1897. The place, Greenbrier County, West Virginia. Elva was well-known in the community. She grew up there, a fine young woman with a bit of a reputation. She'd had a child out of wedlock when she was 22. Nobody knew who the father was, but she eventually settled down with a drifter who'd come to town and gotten work with the blacksmith. His name was Erasmus Shue, and everyone agreed he was just the worst. One day in January, Shue sent a local boy back to his house on an errand. When the kid stepped inside, he found Elva's crumpled body at the bottom of the stairs. Erasmus played the part of the grieving husband very well. He rushed home before the coroner arrived, brought her dead body upstairs, and cradled her head in his lap. When the doctor got there, Erasmus wouldn't leave her body long enough for him to do a thorough examination, though the doctor did note some bruising around her neck. Elva's early demise was assumed to be a tragic accident. Four weeks later, Elva returned. She came to her mother in a vivid dream and told her that Erasmus had killed her. He was a cruel man, she said, and he'd killed her because she'd forgotten to cook him meat for dinner. The next day, Elva's mother, Mary Jane, went to the local prosecutor and told him about her dream. The prosecutor had the body exhumed for a full autopsy. This time, the doctor discovered that Elva's neck had been broken and her windpipe had been smushed, suggesting someone had strangled her. Erasmus was arrested and charged with murder. During his trial, it came out that Erasmus had been married twice before. His first wife claimed he'd been abusive. His second bride had died under mysterious circumstances. Eventually, Mary Jane was put on the stand. She told the jury all about what her daughter said about her own murder. The jury found Erasmus guilty of murder and sent him to prison for the rest of his life. Now, 
Whatever you believe about the afterlife or about ghosts, I want you to note one thing that we'll come back around to shortly. In both the Joe Kupchick story and the Elva Hester one, the murder victims return not to a stranger, but to a loved one who knew them very well. Joe came to his twin brother. Elva came to her mother, both in a dream. Has something similar happened to you? When I was 22, my grandfather died. This is my dad's dad, the one who served in the Pacific in World War II. Used to do Bible readings at the local juvie jail. Great guy. His death was a long time coming, emphysema. But it was devastating to me when I realized I'd never get to talk to him again. He came to me in a dream a few weeks later and told me everything was going to be okay. And I felt better. There's this theory that if we know someone really well, it's possible to leave behind a bit of our consciousness in their minds, a little pocket consciousness, a copy of us. Like, remember in Star Trek The Wrath of Khan, when Spock mind melds with McCoy and transfers his consciousness into the doctor's mind? That's kind of what we're talking about here. And if that's true, we're never really dead. But before we get to this far-out theory, we first have to answer one simple question. What is consciousness anyway? Let me ask you something. Do you remember becoming conscious? Do you remember becoming self-aware? I swear I kind of do. There were these moments in my early childhood, and hopefully it's like this for you if you think back hard enough. There were these moments where I woke up a little and became aware of my relationship to other people and their relationship to me. Flashes of awareness. Getting so mad at my mother that I hid a pair of scissors from her. The scissors had Sylvester the Cat from Looney Tunes on them, and she'd given them to me as a gift, and she made me mad about something trivial, and I thought if I hid them, it would make her feel just as bad as I did. I remember the toy train that played music if you put these little plastic records inside it and how that pleased me. I remember our car had a broken window in the back seat that was covered in plastic and when I made a hole in it, it made a whistle sound when we went to pick up my dad at the steel factory. In each of these memories, there's, there's the sense of becoming aware of the passage of time between similar moments. Becoming aware of who I am felt a lot like learning to read. These little aha moments. I went to a private Christian school for kindergarten. They taught us to read using phonics, but that didn't work for me. Instead, I memorized the shape of words and the spaces in between the letters, and in that way, I could remember that the word monkey was shaped like this, and bird was shaped like that. And eventually I recognized that sounds in some words echoed the sounds of other words and shared the same shapes. And in that roundabout way, I learned to read. It's a paradox, isn't it? Consciousness is something we all innately understand, but it's something that's impossible to explain, or nearly. There are basically two ways of looking at consciousness. Either it's magic or it's physiological. Either our consciousness exists in some spiritual dimension, beyond our physical bodies, or it's the natural byproduct of a specific arrangement of neurons and chemicals in our brains. 
Some philosophers like Rene Descartes believe consciousness is spiritual, ephemeral, magical. So it's completely fine if that's what you choose to believe. You're in good company. But for our purposes today, I want to explore the theory that consciousness is an emergent property of our physical brains. To understand the implications of what that means, I first have to tell you a little bit about this philosopher, Douglas Hofstetter. If that name sounds familiar to you, it's because the writers of the Big Bang Theory named a character after him. The real Hofstetter looks a lot like Andy Warhol, but with the fashion sense of a hip high school math teacher. Hofstetter's upbringing was designed to create a brilliant mind. He was the son of Robert Hofstetter, a physicist who won the Nobel Prize for his work revealing the structures of protons and neutrons. And little Hofstetter was raised on the campus of Stanford University, where his father taught. He studied mathematics at Stanford and received his PhD in physics from the University of Oregon. There, Hofstetter became very interested in fractals, things that appear the same at different levels. Fractals are found in nature all around us, in the branches of lightning bolts, the pointy bits of snowflakes, or the coastline of Great Britain, patterns twisting back on themselves to infinity. In 1979, Hofstetter wrote a book called Gödel, Escher, Bach, An Eternal Golden Braid. It changed the way we think of consciousness, and it won the Pulitzer Prize. Let me break it down for you. First, the title, Gödel, Escher, Bach. These were three geniuses working in very different fields. Kurt Gödel was a mathematician who figured out that no system of expressing the math behind the universe is a perfect system. In order to describe the motions of the planets and and even little bitty things, we have to transcribe what we see as numbers, right? Arithmetic. But those numbers are just arbitrary symbols that exist in place of bigger concepts. Pi being the symbol for the ratio of a circle's circumference to its diameter. E equals mc squared as a symbol sentence to describe the relationship between mass and energy. There are several different types of arithmetic, though, and Gödel found that none of them could possibly describe everything accurately. And he noticed that things got really wonky when you try to use these systems to describe the system itself. In every system, he found paradoxes. Why? Next comes M.C. Escher, the artist. You know his work. Drawings of staircases that loop around in such a way that a person can end up where they began. My favorite Escher piece is Drawing Hands, which shows one hand drawing another as the second hand draws the first. Escher was an expert at illustrating recursion. Note that word, it's important. Recursion. It's a folding back on oneself. It's a mirror pointed at a mirror. It's the Ouroboros, the serpent eating its own tail. It's Stephen King writing Stephen King into one of his books. Funny thing, if you type recursion into Google, it says, Did you mean recursion? Hofstetter was also a fan of the music of Johann Sebastian Bach. Why? Because Bach's music like Gödel's numbers, are a representation of the order and symmetry inherent in the universe. There are logical patterns in Bach's best work, a system under the music that is very mathematical, as if Bach didn't invent something, 
but discovered something. The best art has symmetry and math and recursion. The fractals of a Jackson Pollock painting, the proportion of da Vinci's compositions, hell, the movies of Christopher Nolan. What Hofstadter realized was that the greatest thinkers were the ones who noticed the meaning behind the meaningless, the ones who recognized patterns in the world around us. Hofstetter thought that our brains and the neurons inside and the chemicals in between, it was all just another system of expression, like Gödel's math or Escher's paintings or Bach's music. He believed consciousness arises in humans when that system recognizes itself as a system and decides that that system must be me. I must be thinking. The first time you hear your mother say your name, it's just a bunch of made-up sounds, no meaning. But she looks at you when she says it, into your eyes, and, and you feel the calm and the love. And the next time she says your name, you remember how you felt before, and it was a joy. And the next, and the next. And one day she says your name, and you remember, oh yes, that's me. I'm this. Consciousness, by way of Hofstetter, is almost an illusion. It's what comes out of the interaction of physical processes in the human brain. And the more aware that brain becomes of the process of thinking, what we've come to call mindfulness, the more conscious a person really is. The brain, says Hofstetter, should be viewed as a form of media that supports complex patterns that mirror, albeit far from perfectly, the world, of which to say, needless to say, those brains are themselves denizens. And it is in the inevitable self-mirroring that arises, however impartial or imperfect it may be, that the strange loops of consciousness start to swirl. End quote. And here's where it gets fun. Because if that's what consciousness is, just the interplay between neurons and chemicals in a physical brain, then it can be copied. If another brain builds that same arrangement of neurons and the same amount of chemicals, it can emulate the original. Of course, our brains are almost infinitely more complicated than any computer. We're not about to artificially copy or download a consciousness onto a hard drive, not anytime soon. But, but if two people are close enough, if they've shared a lot of experiences and memories, they're naturally copying the arrangement of those neurons anyway. Edgar Allan Poe figured this all out in 1841 and wrote about it in The Murders of the Rue Morgue, which became the inspiration for every Sherlock Holmes story. Poe's Sherlock was named Dupin, and his stories were narrated by his friend. In Rue Morgue, he describes how Dupin is able to read his friend's mind because they shared the same history. Th this is going to go on for a little bit, but, uh, but stick with me. I, I, I think it's interesting. We were strolling one night down a long, dirty street in the vicinity of Palais Royal, being both apparently occupied with thought. Neither of us had spoken a syllable for 15 minutes at least. All at once, Dupin broke forth with these words. He is a very little fellow, that's true, and would do better for the Theatre de Varieties. It was a non sequitur. What Dupin was saying was that a specific stage actor would do better at a less serious theatre, and that was exactly what Dupin's friend was thinking at that moment. So how did Dupin know? The friend asks him to explain, and Dupin says this. We had been talking of horses, if I remember aright, 
just before leaving. This was the last subject we discussed. As we crossed into the street, a fruiterer, with a large basket upon his head, brushing quickly past us, thrust you upon a pile of paving stones collected at a spot where the causeway is undergoing repair. You stepped upon one of those loose fragments, slipped, slightly strained your ankle, appeared vexed or sulky, muttered a few words, turned to look at the pile, and then proceeded in silence. I was not particularly attentive to what you did, but observation has become with me of late a species of necessity. You kept your eyes upon the ground, glancing with a petulant expression at the holes and ruts in the pavement, so that I saw you were thinking of the stones. Until we reached the little alley called Lamartine, which had been paved by way of experiment with the overlapping and riveted blocks. Here, your countenance brightened up, and perceiving your lips move, I could not doubt that you murmured to yourself the word stereotomic. You continued the same inaudible murmur with a knit brow, as is custom of a man tasking his memory, until I considered that you sought the Greek derivation of the word stereotomy. I knew that you could not find this without being brought to think of atomies, and thus of the theories of Epicurus, and as, when we discussed the subject not very long ago, I mentioned to you how singularly, yet without little notice, the vague guesses of that noble Greek had met with his confirmation in the late nebular cosmology. I felt that you could not avoid casting your eyes upward to the great nebula in Orion, and I certainly expected that you would do so. You did look up, and now I was assured that I had correctly followed your steps. But in that bitter tirade upon the actor Chantilly, which appeared in yesterday's newspaper, the satirist making some disgraceful allusions to the cobbler's change of name upon assuming the buskin, quoted a very peculiar Latin verse upon whose meaning we have often conversed. I mean the line, Perdidit antiquum litera prima sonorum. I had told you that this was in reference to Orion, formerly written Urian, and from certain purgencies connected with this explanation, I am aware that you could not have forgotten it. It was clear, therefore, that you would not fail to combine the two ideas of Orion and Chantilly. That you did combine them, I saw, by the character of the smile which passed over your lips. You thought of the poor cobbler's immolation. So far you have been stooping in your gait, but now I saw you draw yourself up to your full height. I was then sure that you reflected upon the diminutive figure of Chantilly. At this point I interrupted your meditations to remark that, as in fact he was a very little fellow, that Chantilly, he would do better at the Theatre de Verities. Dupin and his friend were thinking in tandem, the way we sometimes do with very close friends and relatives. In that moment, their consciousnesses mirrored each other. For a moment, they were the same. And now we loop back to the beginning of this episode because this suggests that our loved ones can live on inside us, quite literally sometimes. Hofstetter wrote Godel Escher Bach not long after his wife Carol died unexpectedly of a brain tumor. He realized his theories allowed for hope that part of her stuck around. He writes, Along with Carol's desires, hopes, and so on, her own personal sense of I is represented in my brain because I was so close to her, because I empathized so deeply with her, co-felt so many things with her, was so able to see things from inside her point of view when we spoke, whether it was her physical sufferings, 
or her greatest joys, or her fondest hopes, or her reactions to movies or whatever. For brief periods of time in conversations, or even in nonverbal moments of intense feeling, I was Carol, just as, at times, she was Doug. Elva came to her mother in a dream and told her that her husband killed her. Joe Kupchik came to his brother in a dream and seemed confused. My grandfather came to me in a dream and consoled me months after his death. What if those were not dreams at all, but their leftover consciousness, the pattern of them we copied into our brains? If that's true, then it's possible to question the victim of a murder after they've passed on, maybe not to identify their killer, after all their loved one was surely not there and didn't have that experience. But I'm thinking of cases like Maura Murray, the young woman who disappeared in the White Mountains. A good detective could find her closest confidant and put the question to her as if he were speaking to Maura herself. Why? Why did you drive into New Hampshire? Why would you want to go there? And the answer, if they were close enough, would be as good as if it were coming from Maura herself. Because in a way, it is. The Philosophy of Crime is a Fearful Symmetry production. This episode was recorded by Jeff Koval at the State Level Recording Studio in Fairlawn, Ohio. It was produced and edited by William Mankey. I'm James Renner. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit jamesrenner.com where you can find more information on my true crime books and novels. My website also has a link to the nonprofit I started last year, The Porchlight Project which raises money for new DNA tests for Ohio cold cases. It's easy to donate online, and every little bit helps. William Mankey also writes the music for this podcast. Look for his other creations, including Genius Dice, wooden dice that give an artful twist to your gaming night, and his new Dueling Pints drinking game. It's rock, paper, scissors on a pint glass. Both are available on Amazon. Until next time... Remember, there's a simple but challenging solution to the epidemic of crime. If everyone took the time to make good friends with their neighbors, we would know when someone needs our help before they become a statistic. Don't be fearful of the world. Make friends and make it better.